Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Fernando Losada, Managing Director, Head of Latin America Sovereign Research at Oppenheimer. Fernando, such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Damian, thank you so much for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. Well, let's begin. I mean, let's begin, obviously, with a long-overlooked subregion within Latin America sovereign credit, namely that of the Central America and Caribbean region. I'm wondering, if, briefly, if you could just give our audience a clear sense of the playing field, you know, from the top 12 EM issuers such as Panama and the Dominican Republic, all the way down to Guatemala and Costa Rica. I mean, talk to us about, you know, the roles that tourism plays, remittances in the wake of COVID. I mean, Really, Fernando, what does the future hold in store for the region's local and dollar bonds? Okay, great. Let, let me put things a little bit in context. So, uh, so I give you a little bit of a, of a sense of dimensions. When you look at the, the uh, six countries in the strictly speaking Central American region, we are talking about a combined GDP of about $350 billion. If you are the Caribbean countries, then we are up to almost $600 billion. So that's the playing field. Um, the, the, the economies in the region share some common features, but I would say they are far from identical uh, to each other. So I would like to actually debunk some, some myths. Uh, there are definitely common denominators. Uh, they are all small, open to international trade, heavily dependent on tourism. Uh, they receive a large inflow of remittances. Uh, they have exposure to extreme weather events, and, and with some exceptions, uh, they are net importers of oil. So when oil prices go up, they all suffer. But within each one of these categories, the differences are massive. So, for instance, tourism. You have on the one extreme a country like the Bahamas, where uh, tourism represents more than 50% of GDP. Uh, but on the other hand, you have Dominican Republic, or Costa Rica, which are much more diversified economies that not only depend on tourism, but they have local industries, textiles, electronics, chemicals, etc. For instance, Intel operated in Costa Rica for many years until 2015. They decided to leave. They returned in 2020. Now they have a very large semiconductor plant there that represents more than 1% of the country's GDP. Remittances, same story. They vary very widely across the region. Uh, in Costa Rica, for instance, they are essentially insignificant. Uh, very low single digits as a percentage of GDP. 10% of GDP in Domrep. And then you can keep going up in Guatemala, 20%, Honduras, almost 30%. Just as reference, Mexico receives 4% of GDP uh, in remittances. And, and in terms of the macro indicators, if you look at the leverage of the public sector, also very different. You have on the one extreme, Bahamas, uh, debt to GDP, public debt to GDP ratio over 80%. Guatemala, on the other hand, less than 30%. So the bottom line is the region is very diverse. You have very different flavors across different economies. 
So when you look at them, I mean, this is absolutely, I mean, this is just clinical in terms of, for our audience's perspective to understand, you know, how you kind of classify the different countries within the region. You know, so in this environment we're going into, let's just say, for example, one where inflation is coming down, but, you know, it'll be there quite sticky, I guess, persistent and growth is obviously slowing, but, you know, not falling off a cliff. You know, what are your expectations for these countries? Does it really base on your expectation regarding tourism inflows? Does it, is it really based on, you know, how well the U.S. does and remittances from the U.S. to some of these countries or weather or oil? I mean, what are the real factors that you believe are going to drive valuations in EM credit over the better part of, you know, let's call it three-year end? Unfortunately, there is not a single answer to your very good question. It's going to be a combination of all of the above. There are going to be external factors, which to a large extent are going to affect not only the Central America region, but all of the emerging market universe, sure. and also country-specific factors. On that, in that regard, which in, in our view are the most important factors for, for investment decisions, we have liked uh, Dominican Republic for a while. We continue to do so. I can even tell you it's probably my favorite credit in all of Latin America, not just Central America, for a variety of reasons. But if I would have to pick one, uh, this is a country with a long track record of social and political stability. They, uh, they have a political system that has essentially agreed on the basic guidelines of the, what they have to do with the economy. It used to be a two-party system. Now it's a three-party system. But in terms of economic policy design and implementation, the differences are minor. So the, the overall tone is market friendly and they all agree on what they have to do. Very different from many other countries in all of the in all of Latin America. It's the largest economy in the region. The debt market is the most liquid. Uh, by far you see the largest trading tickets from, from Central America and the Caribbean in Domrep. Uh, and the most activity from international accounts. There's, uh, just to, to give you also some sense of numbers, there's something like 60 billion, more than $60 billion worth of tradable government securities, including treasury debt in local currency, treasury debt in dollars, and also central bank debt. And as reference, 10-year uh, Treasury securities uh, in local currency are trading now at around 9.5% yield. Uh, they trade 140 basis points or 150 basis points uh, wider to Mexico, for instance. If you go further out in, in, uh, uh, on the dollar side, uh, you can get 10-year uh, paper for about 7%. Uh, if you go further out in the dollar curve, you can get paper uh, yielding at, uh, around 8% or so. And, and in our view, the main thing uh, that attracts us to, to DOMREP is that it's a strong candidate to reach uh, investment grade status over the coming years, as is Costa Rica, by the way. Um, we believe that this is, gonna sub is, is something that is going to materialize within the next three, four, five years at the latest. And just as a, as a side note, um, in your audience, uh, uh, they, may, they may want to know that the IMF last week released a very interesting report about a Dominican Republic where they identified Rep as the economy in the entire of Latin America that is closing the gap with developed economies at the fastest pace. And they put it not only as a candidate to become investment grade, but also to becoming an advanced economy over the coming decades. 
Well, I can tell you right now, I mean, Fernando, I'm going to be in Santo Domingo in September. Our audience knows this, and I will report back to you on what my findings are. <laughs> no, but in, in truth, I mean, it's such an exciting credit, and you're right. It's a top 12 sovereign credit within the broader EM dollar debt universe. But what I find so fascinating now is investor appetite for local currency debt and DOMREP. You know what I mean? And you mentioned some of the yields there. You know, Talk to me more broadly speaking about this wave of of receiving we're seeing across the whole of emerging market local um, local bonds. I mean, you know, obviously we see some of these double digit yields in places like Brazil and Mexico, Chile, you know, to a lesser Colombia, you know, talk to us a little bit about demand to receive in local debt markets across the whole of the region. Well, it's, it's as you know, well, uh, and I know that you are a specialist in this. Uh, um, it's all about carry, right? Uh, so you have to talk about how the U.S. looks like in the eyes of EM investors first. Uh, I, in my personal view is that in the U.S. we are, in the last few days, suffering the jitters from, from the Fitch downgrade. But my base case scenario is that the Fed will ease monetary policy next year on the back of what is likely to be a gradual deceleration of economic activity. Um, we, many of us were expecting the U.S. to have at least one quarter of contraction this year. But there was more drawing down from savings uh, uh, on the part of U.S. consumers than expected, and that helped support consume, consumption here. I don't think that will last forever, and then the economy will likely decelerate. Uh, so what some thought could happen this year is likely to happen in 2024. And with one or two quarters of negative growth, the Fed stake will, will likely change. And of course, with softer demand, uh, we should also expect um, uh, inflation to remain contained. From the vantage point of EM, going to your question, I think that what is going to be very relevant for investor sentiment is that the market gets convinced that we are finally at the pivot, at the pivotal time in terms of rates in the US, rather than the actual moment that rate cuts begin. Cuts won't happen until next year. The pivot will be reached sooner. And regarding carry, as, as, uh, as I mentioned to you before, as you know, there have been some strong performance so far this year. Colombia, Mexico, Brazil, uh, even after the recent drawdown, um, the, the important part from, from the angle of Latin America is to realize that the hiking cycle started much earlier in, in emerging markets than in the U.S., especially in Latin America, and it was much more intense, meaning the rate hikes were, were much more forceful. So interest rate differentials widen a lot. Uh, are we at peak? I'm not sure. Maybe yes, but differentials are still very large. So I still see appeal for, for emerging market currencies. Uh, you can still get high returns. Uh, on an unhedge and, and on a currency hedge basis. And I think that that will continue to be the case for a while. You know, Fernando, let's shift gears for a second. Let's talk about specifically EM dollar credit and those um, further down along in credit quality. I'm talking the distressed sector. I'm really talking about Argentina, Ecuador, and El Salvador. Recent progress in Zambia, obviously, you know, is kind of getting high yield spreads to come in quite a bit. And what I mean by Zambia, you know, full well is, We've seen um, the Paris Club and, and bilateral creditors, specifically China, appear to be working more closely together. And, you know, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that and whether or not what we're seeing here in terms of spreads coming in across EM high yield and certainly those in the triple C's, you know, that, that spread compression, is that largely sort of spillover from that? 
Or are you seeing, you know, some real progress at the country level in places like El Salvador, Ecuador, Argentina, and the like? Um, I, I'm in the camp of those who think that the country-specific stories are the dominant factor. If you look at El Salvador, for instance, uh, we actually still like the bonds. Um, upsiding prices is obviously more limited from here on because the rally of recent months has been tremendous. If you look at, for instance, the 2027 globals in dollars, uh, they were trading, they are trading now at around 73, 74 cents. Uh, they were trading at 26 cents in, in the middle of last year. So, so they triple in value. Uh, bonds still have double-digit currency yields, uh, current yields. Um, we expect Bukele government to, to continue to model through. Uh, they had an exchange earlier in the year, so they have a much reduced maturity of the 2025 bonds. Uh, there is now only $350 million outstanding of the, the January 25s, uh, and they, but they still yield more than 13%. This is mainly because some investors still uh, are afraid that Bukele may do something unexpected. But we believe that Bukele will be re-elected in February. And also there are some signals that the bilateral relation with the U.S. may be improving. Still unclear, but uh, you probably saw that Secretary Blinken last week said that El Salvador was very important for the U.S., etc., etc. On the other hand, there are still no news about uh, an IMF agreement. So I think that uh, country-specific stories are, are the main explanation for these, uh, uh, for these movements. In the case of Argentina, of course, we can talk much more about this. The elections, yeah, no, you, you, you've beat me to the punch there, Fernando. I mean, that was exactly what I wanted to ask you about. You know, I'm looking at, at you know, um, at, at the Bloomberg today, top story today, uh, Hans Humes of Greylock thinks Sergio Massa is the choice for the next president of Argentina if the country expects to right the ship, I'm talking from a fiscal perspective and spiraling inflation and all that. Talk to us about that election. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, what other political events should we be mindful of as we kind of look through into the next year? Obviously, we've got an election coming up in Mexico. AMLO won't be there. You know, we we have, um, you know, Claudia Scheinbaum, I think, of Morana is, is kind of like the, the leading candidate in the polls now. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the other political events that are impacting the region. Okay, let me, let me touch upon the Argentina case briefly. Um, as you know, there are primary elections on August 13. The, the, the real election is in October 22nd. Um, the, candidates from, the candidate from the ruling coalition is Economy Minister Massa, but he has only 25% of the voters' preferences in the, in the polls. Although that's relatively low, he's still the most voted candidate. The main opposition coalition, which is called Together for Change, will fill two candidates, the Buenos Aires city mayor, uh, Horacio Rodriguez Larreta, and the a former defense minister, Patricia Bullrich. And when you take these two together, they are like 10 points ahead of Massa. Mm -hmm. And many people believe that uh, the opposition will unify after the primaries, and, and then there is going to be a, a regime change. That's a base case scenario for many people in the market. So comes October, and you are no longer going to have Kirchnerism. Uh, now, uh, a regime change will be welcomed by the market, but then the serious challenge starts for whoever wins, Massa or not Massa. The magnitude of, of the problems that the Argentine economy has are enormous. Public debt was restructured in 2020. 
with step-up coupons that will start biting in 2025. Besides, Argentina will be facing negative legal rulings in the near future that will also have to be paid right away, most likely with issues of more debt. Then the new administration will have to dis dismantle all the, the currency controls, what in Argentina is known as el CEPO. Uh, there are very different views on how to eliminate the controls, but, um, but what can be ignored is that Argentina has very little central bank reserves. Indeed, net reserves are negative. So that's why slashing the dragon is, is not going to be so easy. It's going to have to be done little by little. Again, uh, uh, the new administration, whoever it may be, has major, major work to do in the coming months. And the first few months, my, my expectation is that are going to be very, very, very difficult. And in other, in other regions, uh, things to look at are obviously the, uh, the presidential election in, uh, in Mexico that is going to occur next year. As you know well, uh, the Mexican currency has appreciated by more than 12% year to date, despite the corrections in, in the last few days or weeks. Uh, as usual in these cases, the reasons are likely to be multiple. Uh, I, I would say, despite all the, the verbal antics of President López Obrador, the fiscal bottom line has remained robust. The central bank hiked aggressively since 2021, 2022, so interest rate differential increase. And, and, and the other, the, what is unique in a sense about Mexico is that we have this much touted story of nearshoring. So the question, is it real? Well, I think it is. Uh, Mexico has a natural geographical advantage to become the top supplier of goods and services to the US, along with Canada. And that's exactly what's happening, uh, especially as frictions between the US and China have increased. If you look at the numbers of the first half of 2023, Mexico is now the top supplier uh, of goods to the US. It's above Canada and above China. Uh, and the bilateral trade deficit of the U.S. with China has shrunk, but it has increased with Mexico. So we, everything points to indicate that nearshoring is actually working, it's operating. We are also seeing jumps in employment levels in the states of Mexico's north, for instance, Nuevo León, which also suggests an extra impulse to, to cross-border trade. So while I can tell you for sure that nearshoring is the root cause, of, of MXN appreciation. I can definitely tell you that it's part of it and it's, it's here to stay. Regarding the elections, the elections are next year. At this point, at least, what transpires from conversations with investors that we have is that it's not a, a, a main driving force, uh, it's not playing a big role in forex dynamics, uh, at least as of yet. Uh, there is still 10 more months until the election. The ruling Morena candidates are leading the polls. An opposition senator is appearing as a potential contender, but it's still too early. I think there is still time. This is going to become more of a story as the campaigns uh, unfold uh, more vigorously. Fernando, the whole concept of nearshoring is really one of, you know, moving closer to the U.S. And, and what, what I mean by that is, you know, there is certainly a strong, strong reliance on the region and U.S. consumption and the broader U.S. economy. And so I guess from that perspective, you know, as the beta regime here in the United States transitions to one of, you know, risk of higher inflation to risk of slower growth, do you believe the Fed can actually achieve a soft landing? 
I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> it, it is loaded indeed. Um, if we would have had this conversation three or four weeks ago, I would have been more convinced. I'm still of the idea that a soft landing is possible. Um, I think that the definition of soft is what you have to focus on. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what does it mean? Does it mean one one quarter of uh, slightly negative growth? Yeah, I think that that's a likely scenario. I'm not so worried about the medium-term inflation outlook. I think inflation is going to remain relatively contained uh, over the next few quarters. Uh, the bigger question is whether um, the U.S. Um, contracts by during one quarter or two quarters or three quarters. Most likely scenario, just to, to make the numbers very easy, I think that uh, it's safe to assume that GDP growth in the US next year is going to be very close to zero. Um, so when this when when you analyze this from the from the angle of uh, of emerging markets, I think you are forced to analyze the U.S. along with what's happening in China, because both both of those countries are drivers for growth uh, in our economies, not only Latin America, emerging markets in general. In China, the deceleration has already occurred, has been deeper than expected. Export performance, as you know, has been really not good, especially the recent one. And all of, the, all of this is happening uh, while the political relationship with the U.S. is strained. Uh, so we have entered into new territory for China. And new territory means that GDP growth on average is going to be 5%, sometimes maybe even less than 5%. This was unheard of, unthinkable five or 10 years ago when average growth was 10 points. This has direct implications for emerging markets and for Latin America. In particular, China has become the buyer of last resort for many EM economies. In some cases, it's also the lender of last resort, although this is a different issue. And, and slower growth in China means uh, less growth inputs for EM in general. In addition, and especially uh, with the blood in construction investment in China, the impact may be larger in the area of demand for industrial commodities. So I'm not so worried about uh, food commodities. So if you look at if you look at the the, the the grain producing complex of Latin America, meaning Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, especially uh, after three years of La Nina, uh, I think the outlook should uh, should still be robust, should be good. Uh, the the uh, export proceeds from uh, grain um, uh, sales are, are definitely going to rebound from this year and the year before. So, Fernando, if you look at EM currency performance, you know, this year in 2023, well, really since November of 2022, it's largely been a carry story. So, you know, I guess my question for you is, you know, you the U.S. still offers, you know, very attractive yields. And it just seems to me that despite what we just saw with the Fitch downgrade last week and all this talk about, you know, coupon issuance, King Dollar is still the preferred play during flight to quality moves, you know. So I guess, you know, are you a believer in this? bullish structural long-term view for EM currencies, or are you a little bit more suspect of that? Like, where do you think EM currencies are going to be, be headed as we look to uh, the second half of this year? I think that there is still juice left. Uh, there is fuel in the tank. Um, I, I, once again, uh, the performance, particularly in three, four or five 
uh, specific names has been tremendous, uh, even after the, the recent correction. But I think that uh, differentials are still attractive. And if you look at the history of Latin America, uh, what, you know, what you learn is that when monetary cycles are where we are now, uh, where uh, Latin America is at the peak and it's starting to, uh, to reduce rates, this is, a, this is a situation that is historically propitious to take positions in local currency denominated debt. I think that that story still will play and especially between now and the end of the year, uh, we, we, we like it. Well, Fernando, I mean, one more question for you. I know we're getting a little bit long in time here. You know, just, you know, briefly, what risks do you believe the market's not currently pricing in through year end? I mean, for me, you know, what do you really believe is the pain trade for global markets? Clearly, we just saw the U.S. yield curve bear steepen. I know that got a lot of people on edge. I mean, what should investors be focused on here in terms of tail risk protection? Um, what worries me is that after um, the recent worsening of geopolitical stress uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, with Russia exiting the Black Sea Agreement, uh, we have seen a spike in food commodity prices, and we have seen, as you know, a gradual increase in oil prices. This was not in the cards until the second quarter of the year. This is something relatively recent. And this may change things not only in the U.S., but also uh, within the emerging market world. Uh, in the U.S., obviously, because this is going to, this may fuel um, inflationary pressures, uh, changing the outlook for what I expect the, central, the Federal Reserve will do. Uh, if the commodity price shock becomes much worse than what I expect, and this, this is a scenario that I cannot rule out, Obviously, for the Fed, the, the story is going to become much more difficult. And even within the EM universe, we are going to have winners and losers. Uh, as I mentioned before, commodity exporters, like food commodity exporters, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, may benefit. Um, but there are a lot of uh, emerging market economies that are net importers, both of food and especially of fuel. So uh, this may become a very negative external terms of trade shock for some uh, for some economies in the em and in the em world particularly in our little uh, part of the world of central america and the caribbean remember uh, many of these economies are not self-sufficient in energy they are net importers of oil if oil continues to go up this is going to be a negative shock for them Fernanda Lasada, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always committed emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, keep moving forward. This is the Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast on Bloomberg Radio around the world.